Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day everyone and welcome again to Profitable Farmer. I've heard it said, I think the best definition for leadership that I've heard is about predictability, giving people certainty. And here we are in somewhat um, volatile times or we've got variable prices for meat, cattle and commodity. The cereal prices tend to be strong at the moment, but I think it's just as important now as ever to be really clear on the data and the information that you're using to make really strong decisions around how you navigate the current climate in agriculture and for your farm. A couple of weeks ago, episode 121, we were lucky enough to speak with Stefan Vogel, who's the General Manager for Rabo Research Australia New Zealand. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Angus Gidley-Baird, who's the Senior Analyst for Animal Proteins Australia New Zealand for Rabobank. Um, Rabobank, as I mentioned last time, has over 120 analysts across the um, global marketplace, food and agriculture. So we're very fortunate to have Angus join us and um, share his insight on what's actually happening in the meat sector at the moment, locally and globally, and give us some insight and some data that can help us make some really strong predictions um, that support our decision-making and our businesses. So Angus, welcome and thank you very much for your time. Not a problem, Jeremy. Good to uh, good to be here. And I've also asked Greg Johnson, co-founder and director at Farm Owners Academy to join us. Greg's got over 40 years of experience consulting to um, and supporting the success of farming families, particularly in the meat sheep space, but across most industries. And so Greg, great to have you with us too, just to help us shape this conversation. Thanks, Jeremy. Welcome, everybody. Uh, great to uh, great to be with you today. So, Angus, um, we're obviously all very acutely aware of what's happened recently and locally um, for sheep and cattle um, and a price drop. What's your read on that broadly, um, and you know what has stemmed that in in your opinion? <laughs> Yeah, uh, and no doubt it's the, the question or the conversation that's going uh, rattling around most of the sale yards and uh, and producer forums at the moment. But um, I mean, we've got to reflect on the fact that we've had two, three very good years from 2020 all the way through to the beginning well, beginning of 2022 when everything sort of peaked really. Um, although sheep and lamb prices had started to ease by then, but um, effectively. <coughs> excuse me, a couple of very good years. Uh, we were expecting that that would be corrected at some point. Uh, the the very strong producer demand that had driven a lot of that, well, a lot of that restocking activity and the producer demand associated with it, the favourable seasonal conditions, the rising prices, et cetera, uh, all converged together to create that sort of highly pressurised inflationary system um, and prices, livestock prices going through the roof and setting new records. Um, it was going to end at some point, whether that was going to be a shock through a seasonal situation or whether it just gets to the point where things are too expensive and people start reining in their, their restocking activities. Um, so that was expected. 
Um, probably one of the things that um, has unfortunately coincided with that same sort of resetting of the whole market is that we've got um, you know, a much softer global consumer complex and also domestic consumer complex as well. So not only have we got the, the producer that's reached the point where they think their herd or their flock is, is at a level that they're happy with, so they're not actively in the market chasing livestock. Um, we've got the seasonal conditions that are coming over the top, so people become a lot more sceptical about what they're buying, um, what their timeframes are in terms of holding stock or, or investing in stock. And then on top of that, you've got a very soft consumer market. So there's no demand pulling that product through the system. A large lump of supply hitting the market, producers backing out, consumers not wanting as much. And, and unfortunately, that's just led to this situation where um, where prices have contracted by the huge volumes or huge numbers that we've seen sort of, you know, we were talking earlier in the year 40 and 50%. We're now talking sort of 50 and 60% contraction year on year for some of these prices in their different categories. But um, some of the, the fall, and, and, and I'd probably say that you know the the prices are lower than where i would have expected them to get to but i think a lot of that has been driven by a degree of skepticism and pessimism in the producer market as well as i said without that demand from the consumer and pulling it through the system and and a few bottlenecks at the processing plant you know the the price setting environment relies a lot more on that producer and with the producer being very skeptical about what the season's hold you know going to bring means that they're either deciding to offload more or they're deciding not to buy as many. And as a result, we've just seen prices contract a lot further or further than what I was expecting them to. Thanks, Angus. Greg, what's your take on what's happened? Yeah, I, I agree with what Angus has said, no doubt. Um, I think there's quite a bit of, I think there's been quite a bit of fear in the market um, on, the, on the selling side for the last few months um, as the forecasts for the unfolding, the El Nino and the unfolding season ahead has come to play and and uh, whether you like it or not um there was a lot of emotion in markets um they're not it's not always driven by fundamentals and and um so that's i think that's been a big a, a big part of it and i think the other thing that um probably haven't hasn't been mentioned is that uh, it's my understanding that the um that there was a lot of global inventory um increase on the back of covid because of the 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 issues around supply chains people getting a bit worried about you know whether they could sort of manage the, the the sort of reliable supply chains that we had prior to COVID. So they tended to buy up more inventory and, and hold more inventory. And now they, they, I think they're relaxing that stance a bit. They can see that the, the global supply chains are, are coming back to being sort of where they were before COVID. And so they're tending to reduce inventory as well. So I think that, that that's also reducing the demand side um, as well. Thanks, yeah, Greg. Definitely. I, I... I'll just pick up on Greg's point there. We, we don't get a lot of data looking at stocks and inventory levels. Um, Japan does publish it. They had uh, back well, back in about April, they reached 160,000 tonnes of beef in storage at that point in time, which is the highest they've seen in over 10 years. Um, throughout the, well, since April, it's been pretty much flatlining along at that level, which is still historically very high. They're starting to come into a realm now at this latter end of the year where they tend to have slightly higher stocks in the system anyway, um, where it's becoming a little bit more normal, but still very high numbers in the system. It's, yeah, we hear um, from our colleagues, um, a Chinese analysts is saying the same in China. There was a lot of buying activity through the end of last year, expecting that economic recovery to, to kick in, the COVID lockdowns to be removed and, and general consumer spending to, to pick up. That just didn't eventuate through the course of this year. So they had a lot of stock on hand. Unfortunately, some of that stock is quite expensive too. So when they're selling it into a softer market, it becomes a bit of a hit for the, the bottom line. 
And and that's just caused a lot of congestion in that supply chain. And we might talk about it a bit later, but you look at it from a particularly from a beef point of view um, for Australia at the moment. Prices, when you look at global prices, they're okay. But the challenge is that um, you, the customer is just not wanting that same volume. So um, we'll, we'll no doubt talk about it in terms of slaughter numbers uh, at the moment. But we've we've the congestion in the system means that that we just can't push any more volume in. Yet we're trying to slaughter more livestock. Yeah, Angus, um, you mentioned three good seasons. Um, can you just at the front end of this? Can you just give us a sense of herd and flock numbers over the last sort of three to five years, and what you model around that, and what sort of increase we've seen on that on that supply side? Yeah, I, I, inventory numbers are always a, an interesting conversation. Um, I, uh, how we say it this way? Every, every inventory number you see is is effectively a model. Um, we don't have an absolute uh, number um, that I, I suppose I would use with a with a hundred percent confidence. So we're sort of using the best option we can have available. Um, numbers obviously have been increasing. Um, our our um, cattle inventory number. Um, is getting close to, or we think it's getting close to, to higher levels, but it's still a little bit of a way off. We're probably a little bit different to MLA, who came out at the beginning of the year with their projections suggesting we were going to reach, I think it was 28.7 million head at that point, um, which is sort of at the upper end of our, our inventory number that we've seen in, in recent history. Um, my calculation, my modelling would suggest that we've probably seen a slightly more conservative recovery, um, particularly when you look at states like Queensland, there were quite a number of producers up there that just hadn't, they hadn't seen the same change in seasonal conditions that New South Wales and Victoria had through 2020, 2021. Um, it's been a much slower recovery in that process and they're 45% or thereabouts of the Australian national cattle herd. So without them having fully recovered, um, I, I'm probably uh, of the belief anyway that we've still got a little bit more to go in terms of our ability to fill or have the same numbers of cattle in the system. Um, sheep, on the other hand, though, has been quite high. We, you know, sheep numbers, and I just can't remember them off the top of my head, flock numbers, um, but they have recovered quite strongly. And, and this is um, one of the reasons, I think, why we've seen lamb and sheep prices fall as much as they have. And the numbers of, of lambs and sheep on the market at the moment is possibly we may have possibly underestimated how many are out there plus that composition of the flock too as we move through 2020 2021 um the recovery the, the favorable seasonal conditions um we had beef prices or cattle prices going through the roof anyone with a mixed sheep beef operation might have taken the decision to to actually add a few more sheep or retain a few more sheep in the system you've got a faster turnaround rate with them as well um and also a, a bit of a you know opportunity to to increase your um your prime lamb type production systems as opposed to a merino one as well so you know for for a few more views on the ground, um, people retaining sheep rather than cattle because it might have been cheaper, plus the fact that they were focusing on a prime lamb business with a much higher lambing percentage, we've probably um, uh, exaggerated or, or, or um, multiplied that number of sheep quite quickly in the system. And I think we've probably, uh, as I said, the inventory numbers are always a little bit, um, you take them a little bit with a grain of salt, but I think we must be going close to some of the highest uh, numbers of sheep we've seen for at least the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, Jeremy, the, the MLA's projections were 
in July, where for the, uh, the national sheep flock could be 78.75 million. Breeding ewes, 46.14 million, which is the highest since 2007. Yep. And Angus, what would be your comment? How, to what degree have we moved more towards prime lamb production and away from merinos, or is the balance as it was? What's your read there? Uh, I think we've, we we have moved a little bit. MLA AWI do a survey of sheep producers, and and again, I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, but I did look last year. Their quarter one survey response, I think, had the flock at about seventy. I think it was about seventy four or seventy six percent merino use in the flock, and then at in quarter one this year, I think that had dropped to sixty seven percent. So. Um, that's off the top of my head. <laughs> Check those numbers. But, um, uh, yeah, it, I, I think there definitely has been a bit of a shift um, sort of towards that prime lamb market, particularly in the context of where wool prices are and where lamb prices have been. Lamb prices have been gradually increasing. Uh, I think they've been going up for the last 10 years or thereabouts on a, on a fairly consistent rise obviously there's seasonal variation throughout the year but uh, generally across the year it's it's been a, an increase for a while whereas wool prices they had a nice high peak um i think it was 2018 19 but they they um retracted after that a little bit so you can understand there's a bit more focus on that land production plus just generally you know genetics are improving and, and merino operators are probably getting higher lambing percentages as well yeah you mentioned that scepticism about the season having an effect. Um, how's that playing out practically? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you can almost well you, you can. I've I've mapped um, uh, Australian sale national sale yard prices for cattle of um, you know your replacement type stock, your restocker heifer, restocker steer, etc., uh, and also for lambs and sheep. You map them across the year, and if you um, <laughs> coloured pencil, draw in what months had rainfall above or below average. Um, it's not a; it, it's a fairly crude process, but you can see in the months that are drier than average, prices have tended to slip. In the months that are higher than average or on average, prices have tended to sort of hold. So you can see through the course of the year, it's just been this gradual sort of slip down. Every time there's a dry month, um, prices come off, and then it and then it sort of improves and prices hold, and then it's a dry month and it slips again, and it's just sort of gradually worked its way through the year. You know, that that seasonal influence is having a big play. You can also see from about, I think it was about April, May, about April, May, I think the bomb really started talking about the El Nino presence and the possibility of an El Nino and therefore drier conditions ahead, and that was sort of when the, the markets really sort of started to, to dip down. Um, you could feel... You could feel the sentiment in the in the sale yards. Uh, I was in Queensland speaking to a, a Western Queensland producer out in that channel country there, and he said, I've got grass up to my knees, um, but I'm selling cattle because the forecast is it's going to get dry. And I think a lot of people have made that decision. Um, one of the questions I've got is whether they've made that decision and they've offloaded a whole lot of um, call them surplus or additional stock to what they would normally like to hold or whether they've actually reduced some of the numbers uh, or reduced numbers below what they would like to hold. So effectively, are they putting themselves back into a normal operating position or are they putting themselves into a drought operating position? That's one question I've got because that will sort of give us an idea of, you know, have we got more livestock to hit the market or have we have we pushed that lump 
that we usually see in a drought situation, have we brought that forward? And we've seen that through the last six months. And effectively, you know, even if it was to get drier, we don't have as many livestock in the system to get rid of uh, in the next six months. That's one of the questions I've got in terms of numbers out there at the moment. Greg, do you have a comment there? No, that's, that was a good summary. Um, uh, it was a good summary. I think one of the things that I've seen uh, reported too is that um, part of the issue with the cattle market and is the and the good experience, the good seasons that have been experienced the last couple of years, it's led to higher reproduction rates than average in the north as well, which has meant a higher turnoff. So a higher turnoff number and a higher turnoff weight, um, which has contributed. And uh, the only other comment I want to make is that. Yes, there's no doubt that the markets have fallen, both the cattle and the, and, the, and the land markets have fallen very significantly off of the highs in back in 2000 and late 2001, 2002. But we have to remember that those the levels that the market was at at that point of time were ridiculously high. Like I've never seen in my 40-odd years in agriculture, I've never seen land prices that high in real dollar terms. But they were so far above the long-term, um, you know, 80th percentile, 90th percentile uh, prices that... Um, that any fall, even back to a uh, even back to a long term fifty percent price, was going to be a big fall. Um, and as uh, as Angus said, it, it shot beyond that. But um, you know, um, I think we need to be careful about quantifying the amount of falling percentage terms off of what was a really really high base. Yep, no good comment. Um, slaughter numbers, Angus. What are you seeing um, with the processes and and their ability to handle the um, the supply, yeah, and and they're slightly two slightly different situations at the moment with sheep and cattle. Uh, if we start with sheep at the moment, so our um, our weekly lamb slaughter number for the year to date, uh, up to well, where are we at the moment? Late October at the moment um, is up nine percent year on year for the year to date. Um, sheep slaughter is up fifty eight percent, so a lot more sheep coming into the system. Um, the lambs. Uh, Again, it's a year-on-year comparison. So we had a lot of lambs in the system last year um, and we've just added to that slightly at the moment. In terms of putting it into relative terms and, and how it compares to normal, so we are above the five-year average in terms of sheep slaughter and well above uh, the five-year average in terms of lamb slaughter at the moment as well. Um, the interesting thing, uh, or actually coming back to your question on on total slaughter, um, the thing that I, uh, I think is is one, and I haven't heard a lot about it, but I can only imagine it can't be too far away. And this is where the question around how many numbers are left in the system um, uh, starts to play out. But when you add lamb to sheep slaughter, so you get a total small stock slaughter, the numbers that we were killing on a weekly basis um, in late September, early October there are close to the highest numbers we've seen in the last 10 years. And I was trying to go back to see anything beyond that to see if we've seen numbers much higher than that. I suspect we must be very close to reaching our physical capacity from a processing point of view uh, to be able to deal with those numbers at the moment. Um, now, it, it was historically high for that August, September, October period. Um, generally, our total slaughter numbers are higher through November, December, January, um, but it's it's in line with that. So if we follow that normal seasonal trend of, of 
you know, numbers picking up as we move through to, to those summer months, um, I don't know if we've got a lot more capacity in the system to, to fit a lot more into it. The other interesting thing looking at sheep and lamb slaughter is that we saw lamb slaughter has effectively been flat across the course of the year, which is unusual. Normally, there's a seasonal dip through June, July, August as we clear out the old lambs and wait for the new season to come in. We've actually seen lamb slaughter almost sort of consistently increase across the course of the year. Um, May, June, July volumes, August volumes were higher than what they were in February, March, April. Um, so part of that, uh, it's been explained to me, is as a carryover of last season's lamps that just haven't been finished in time and, and has taken longer for them to finish. And, and part of it is also the fact that we've got more lambs in the system as well. So the market just hasn't it hasn't had that reduction in lamb supply that's allowed it to reset itself again before we go into the new season. Um, so that's one thing on the lamb side of things. On the sheep side of things, we saw a, a bit of an abnormal lift in sheep sort of numbers, and it was particularly New South Wales um, through April, May, June. And normally they would be the lowest months for sheep slaughter. We actually saw them well above the 10-year range for those couple of months. So again, I don't know if it's going to have a material impact, but if we're short slaughtering sheep at that period of time, which is generally when they're in lamb or about to lamb anyway, I wonder whether or not that's going to have an impact on our lamb numbers in the current drop of lambs at the moment, whether or not that was um, people getting rid of ewes in lamb or whether it was just people getting rid of ewes in some of the old weathers as well at the same time. But that was an unusual one that has potential consequences further down. If we flip to cattle um, slaughter, though, uh, it's a different different situation um, in that we've been tracking along at this level uh, about 125, 127,000 head a week, and we've been doing that since about the middle of the year. That's close to the five-year average. So we're, we're not up in those upper echelons like we were with sheep and lamb. Um, we're tracking along at close to the five-year average. But that in itself is a bit of a limit because um, given the fact that it's tracked along at that and you know that people are trying to book in cattle and they've been told they've got, you know, two, three, four-week wait times, um, there's a reason we're, we're sort of coming up against a bit of an artificial ceiling there, which I think is partly due to the fact that we've got plants that have the capacity to go bigger, but they just they need an additional shift. They have to put on an additional shift of labour to actually do that. And this is where those um, supply chain comments and, and the build-up of stocks in the system come into play here because I think from a processing point of view, they'd probably be willing to actually kill more, but the problem is they've, they've, they've got to then find a home for that. They've got to sell that into a market. And at the moment, that market is very full. So if they were to increase their capacity to kill and we see that processing number jump up through an, an additional shift, they've then got the challenge of trying to fit additional product into a market that's already full. So I think they're they're trying to balance this soft consumer market and high volumes of stocks in the system with livestock that are coming online and becoming available. Um, we saw JVS make a public statement a couple of weeks ago about ad adding additional stock, uh, uh, shift to the Dinmore plant. Um, you know, those sort of big plants that potentially can add a, an additional shift will make a material difference into our weekly slaughter numbers. Um, but you'd have to imagine, you know, you wouldn't add that shift until you know that you've got an ability to move that product through the system. So it's sort of being held up there. But I don't think it's it's sort of an artificial ceiling in the sense that we physically can go higher once we put those shifts on and we feel confidence and the, the market feels there's confidence for a need for that product in the market. Um, unlike the sheep side of things where I, I think we're possibly up against a bit of physical capacity limitation 
um, if we were to try and push more numbers through. So Angus, getting kill space has been an issue for quite a few, for a little while now. Is there anything else that might see that correct or change over time? Yeah, obviously the the number of processes that are operating and the capacity that they're operating at. Um, there are a few in the wings. Um, the TFI Murray Bridge plant um, is scheduled to come back online at some stage. Um, I think there's the Kudamundra plant as well um, is going through a bit of a, a rebuild process. There are a few in the in the wings. Um, there's also, I suppose, the, the question for the processor too is to how to manage that labour force and whether or not you you employ a whole boning room um, to, to to break the carcass down completely, or whether you look at options in terms of just quartering it or leaving it as a whole carcass, bagging it and sending it, um, rather than having a, a whole lot of labour tied up in a boning room. You know, potentially getting numbers through the system quicker that way and not not requiring additional labour. So there are ways that it can be worked around, but. I think one of the biggest challenges um, from a processing point of view is that, you know, a couple of years ago, solving some of those labour problems was a lot easier and a lot, lot more, it was a shorter time frame. Um, these days, you know, it takes a long time to get a whole shift on board. Um, a, lot, a lot of the, the operators you see these days are also in the, in the business of providing accommodation and you've got to, you know, make it attractive for those workers as well. So it's a, it's a longer process um, to, to put those on it. We, we can't be as, as nimble as what we used to be in terms of adding or, or reducing shifts. And Angus, what's happening in WA with live export? Can you just give us an update there and perhaps your read on the impact that's having locally? Yeah, obviously the the uh, the government's position at the moment and the policy that they've got uh, that is to to stop the the live sheep trade. Um, it, it it does it is having a, a play on that uh, again. Having a play on the producer sentiment over there is probably the biggest influence in the market at the moment. I was over in WA a number of weeks ago and speaking to people around the Catanning Sheep Show there, and yeah, you you can hear it um, in in the conversations that they have. You know, when you look at the actual numbers, uh, I think the numbers for the year to date on uh, sheep going via live export is is up fifty percent on last year. So they've they've done some pretty good numbers so far this year, and it looks like it will continue. Um, the slaughter numbers, land slaughter numbers, have been close to a got a five year average number. Um, they have picked up a little bit in the last couple of months. Their sheep slaughter numbers um, were a bit higher through that April, May, June period, um, uh, uh, sort of the highest they've been in the last eight or nine years, um, but have now come back to the, the five-year average. So I, I think it's probably it's probably more a case of, you know, the, the influences on the whole sheep market, you know, in terms of increasing volumes of stock on the, on the, uh, in, the in the supply chain, oh, sorry, livestock that are out there, the, um, the congested congested supply chain, some of the limitations in processing capacity uh, and dry seasonal conditions and the outlook uh, are having the biggest bearing on the market. But in WA, you've got that added complex where that sheep producer is making those exact same decisions as everyone else, but he's also got to think about it. Well, is that live sheep trade going to be there in five years' time? Yes or no? Is now the time for me to make the decision, my permanent decision on what my, what my numbers might be into the future? So it's it's just adding, it's adding to that producer sentiment space over there at the moment. Thanks, Angus. Appreciate your comments. Um, turning our attention to the demand side, would you mind just giving us your insight to? 
what's happening in terms of consumption with some of our major trading partners? Yeah, so uh, it, this is a hard one to read. There's there's not a lot of uh, good information that, that gives you an idea on consumption or demand. Um, we look at export numbers and generally, you know, export numbers have been very strong. Our, our exports uh, for, for beef so far this year uh, are up 22%. Um, you know, we've got strong numbers going to the US and to China, um, even South Korea is taking some numbers, Japan's down 7%. Um, so on a, on a volume sense, you're looking at it thinking, oh, those those markets are really good. But then you speak to people in the trade and you look at the consumption side of things and you look at some of that consumer spending and some of the retail and sales figures, etc., and they're not they're not necessarily reflecting those big jumps in in volumes. So um, the consumption is probably drawn into we could probably draw a line between um, general meat consumption in in Asia, whether it be beef or sheep meat, and um, sheep meat consumption in the rest of the world. And then U.S. beef consumption seems to have its own little bubble at the moment. Um, generally those high inventory numbers in the system and from what we hear about in the markets, while consumers are feeling a little bit more confident in the economy, they're not necessarily spending much more. So the volumes aren't aren't moving um, and the prices, they're, they're just not pulling that through the system from a demand point of view. Um, but we are seeing uh, increased volumes go into that market from an export point of view. So it does create a few questions in my mind around those stock levels and how long it's going to take us to clear some of those stock levels out, particularly as we add volumes to that that fairly congested space at the moment. Um, the US beef market is is a little bit on its own. It's 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 an interesting one. Um, they've had uh, very strong demand in the US, uh, and and demand being the uh, the function of price and quantity consumed. Um, so consumers over there are paying record retail prices at the moment, and they're consuming very good, very high numbers from a per capita consumption point of view. Um, and we've seen that for the last couple of years. Demand, as calculated by a couple of the universities over there, I think it hit its peak in twenty twenty one. Um, and in 2022, it came off a little bit, and this year it's off a little bit more, but still um, they have been three of the strongest demand periods in history from a, a US beef consumption point of view. Um, that in itself is impressive. That's that's caused prices to be strong. It started to drag up US um, livestock prices. It's it's supporting some of these increased volumes that we're sending to the US at the moment. As I said, up well, US volumes are up seventy three percent year on year for for this year to to September. Um, but what we're also experiencing, what the US is also experiencing at the moment, is that they're going through their natural cycle process of of building up their cattle herd and then the cattle herd starts to contract. And that's been exaggerated by drought conditions over there for the last couple of years as well. So we saw them reach their peak cow slaughter number uh, at the end of last year. Um, huge numbers uh, being slaughtered. Their net, that, that female slaughter is now starting to contract only because or largely because they've got less cattle in the system. It's still quite dry in a number of areas of the US. They haven't really started the restocking yet. This process will go on for a couple of years as that production declines. So they've got strong demand and they've got declining domestic production. So we're going to start to see a, a, a lift in global prices as a result of that US market, that US consumer wanting, continuing to want their, their beef. Um, and 
willing to pay for it as well. So that's going to start to have an influence on, across the whole global market from a beef point of view. Greg, any comments? Uh, just a question for Angus. Um, on the lamb side, um, I read some commentary just recently that um, that China is now our biggest export um, destination for lamb. Um, and I'm just interested with, with, with the increased volume of lamb and, and the increased volume of beef that's been going into China. How much of that's been driven by the aftermath of the swine flu epidemic, and and um, and if quite a bit of it is that, you know, how sustainable is it? Yeah, uh, um, I, no one's confirmed it with me, um, but I think what we're seeing large volumes. Yeah, you're right, large volumes of of lamb, um, and I just don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, but yeah, large numbers of, of, of volumes of lamb and large volumes of, of mutton going into China at the moment. Um, my read, um, and, and speaking with Chen Jin, our, our analyst in China, and trying to understand that demand side of things over there, um, my read is that they're, they're seeing, as a general statement, it's a much cheaper, more affordable protein now than what it was a couple of years ago. And they're taking advantage of the fact that the price has come off a lot. We see similar sort of thing uh, from a Middle East point of view. We've seen Middle East volumes jump this year compared to what they've been in the last couple of years as well. Um, I, I think it's probably more a case of the the buyers over there taking advantage of a cheaper price point for protein. Um, the African swine fever in in China it, it, it continues to be a a challenge, but they've they've recovered from the initial. 2019 outbreak and the the severe reduction in pork production over there, um, it's back now to a more normal, sustainable level. Um, and uh, so it's not it's yeah the 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 volumes that are going over there aren't necessarily replacing other protein sources. I think it's more a case of it's a uh, um, a more affordable protein for them now compared to what it was a couple of years ago. Um, they continued, I mean, the US, uh, sorry, China has really opened up and increased the volumes that they've got from South America and the Brazilian Argentinian um, beef producers are taking full advantage of that, sending, or oh, I think it must be close to, it's got to be close to half of China's beef imports come out of South America, um, possibly a little bit more than that because I think Brazil might account for something like 45% of uh, Chinese beef imports. So, um, yeah, it's uh, less less so about African swine fever and probably more so about um, the pricing point that we're selling it to them at the moment that I think is is leading to those volumes. Um, and and when you do rough numbers in the system, the retail prices for beef and sheep meat over in China have been pretty steady, while pork prices jumped around a lot through that process of, you know, the big contraction in pork numbers with the African swine fever, then the rebuild of the pork numbers, and then you know profitability of pork production changed, and um, yeah, the retail prices for pork jumped around a lot more, whereas beef and lamb have been pretty pretty consistently high. Thank you. Thanks, Angus. And what about domestic consumption trends and with interest and inflation and I guess increasing cost bases? Are, you, are we seeing a change there in, in beef and lamb consumption? Yeah, domestically here in Australia. Um, yeah, uh, the numbers I've done, um, and, and again, fairly basic, but, you know, volume produced, less volume exports gives how much you consume here um, divided by the population. Using that as a calculation, my uh, by my calculations, Australian consumption of beef and lamb picked up in the last couple of years, um, a, a little bit. So 
you know, despite these record retail prices that we hear so much about, um, per capita consumption actually picked up a little bit. Um, the, the natural, well, I suppose the historical relationship you have, um, that you, I suppose, have to assume stays in place is that, you know, there's an inverse relationship between price and quantity consumed. And when prices go up, we tend to consume less. Um, so that being the case and the, the, the the likelihood that economic conditions are going to be slow you'd have to assume that you know per capita consumption might at best sort of stay stagnant or might drop a little bit um but it was it was interesting to see those numbers in the last couple of years and again sorry i don't have them on, on the top of my head but um you know there was a a, a a reasonable increase in per capita consumption of um both beef and beef and lamb in australia and so then with your modelling, what um, what is the outlook that you um, are communicating around with regard to price for those two proteins over the next few years? Yeah, so I think um, the uh, we're going to have supply volumes on the market, both sheep, lamb and cattle. Um, we may see a contraction in lamb volumes, but I don't expect to see it until 2025 um, or the late 2024 into 2025 season, um, whereas cattle volumes might continue to sort of tick up slowly, um, depending on how bad, you know, the the seasonal conditions become. If it becomes very dry, we might see a bit of a contraction as people liquidate some of their herds and flocks. But I think we're still in a bit of a, a longer-term rebuild phase, particularly from a beef point of view. So um, supply volumes, I'm, I'm sort of expecting to be relatively steady to sl maybe slightly increase from a cattle point of view. Um, demand side of the equation, um, there's a lot more, uh, I'm calling it like the, there's a much brighter light at the end of a shorter tunnel for beef, unfortunately, for sheep. Um, that US market is going to have an influence on the global prices, and those global prices will have an influence on the Australian cattle market. We've seen it happen before, back in 2013-14, um, in 2012, when the US hit their peak cow slaughter and then went through the rebuild phase into 2014, mid 2014, we saw global lean trimmings prices jump by about 50% over the space of about six months. Um, for those that can remember, back in 2015, it was our, I think it was our second highest slaughter number, if not our highest. Um, 2014 and 15 were our big, big years. Um, even though we had huge numbers of stock coming on the market because of dry conditions, we actually saw Australian livestock prices rise by about 10%. So that US complex is going to have a positive influence on the global market and in turn the Australian cattle market. I think as we start to see supply chains clear up um, through next year, even with the slow economic recovery, but you know people are buying less volumes at the moment, um, as those supply chains clear up, we'll start to see prices find a firmer ground and possibly lift a little bit. Um, and then as that US market kicks in in the second half of next year into 2025, that's going to start pulling cattle prices up. Um, on the sheep and lamb side of things, though, I think um, there's not that same catalyst to draw global markets up. Um, there are positive signs long term, 
and you look at it in the sense of you know opening market opportunities. We've got the trade agreement now with India, uh, the opportunity to develop further that US market um, and other sheep meat markets as well. Um, our other global competitor being New Zealand's not really expecting much growth. So really, longer term, there are great opportunities. It's just there's no real catalyst in the short term that's going to shock that market unless we actually have a big contraction in supply here um, to, to rebalance that out. But I'm not expecting that to happen in the next 12 months. So um, from that point of view, it's going to be a much slower recovery for lamb and, and sheep markets over a longer period of time. And just while we're on it, what about goats? Where do they fit into the equation here? Uh, yeah, goats. Goats. It's an interesting one. I think it's sort of well, it's sort of got a bit forgotten given everything that's gone on in um, in, in sheep and cattle markets recently. Um, uh, there were conversations, and particularly if you go through, you know, the New South Wales, Queensland areas, people talking about actually farming goats um, rather than it being largely a sort of uh, a, a rangeland harvesting type operation. And once we start farming them and get a much more consistent volume coming through the market, it much, might become a much more stable market. Um, but one at, at the moment, it's sort of one that sort of fills a gap a little bit. Um, you know, when um, other livestock prices are, are, are bad, you, you know, potentially can go out and muster a few goats and add it to your cash flow. Um, but when lamb and cattle prices improve that's where you you focus your your numbers and it sort of ebbs and flows a bit but if you get a little bit more um uh, a little bit more farming of goats into the system you might find that that number or that the volumes settle out and becomes a much more genuine market but it, it's it's similar to to sheep in the sense that you know there are very few exporters of goat meat in the world um we're one of the largest and the opportunities to grow that market are good um but again it's a it's a sort of a slow recovery process. It's about growing that market over an extended period of time. It's not going to be, um, there's not other uh, another global supplier in that market that's going to have a sudden shock in supply that's going to correct prices out there at the moment. It's going to be, a again, similar to the sheep market, I believe, probably a, a slow, possibly slower process than sheep. But still, there are positive upsides. It's just a longer, longer time frame. Great. Thanks. Greg, have you got any comments or questions? Well, just on the goat side, I think the last report I saw from MLA about goat uh, slaughter numbers was that about eighty percent was were coming from behind wire. So, so I think that there like, there has been a pretty rapid move to to farming goats um, in the in the pastoral areas in the last over the last few years. Um, and you know, obviously, with once you once you're farming goats, you can control reproduction rates and you know and so forth. So, so I think there's I think there's a fairly rapid there has been a fairly rapid um, move towards you know towards Moving from a feral catch situation to a farm a farm situation in the in the in the goat meat industry. Thanks, Greg. I think it's really helpful to get a read or your read an expert comment on what's happened recently and what your predictions are for us around price and consumption in the near term. Greg, um, just turning to you, a lot of farmers have probably been a bit surprised by the extent of the price drop um, coinciding with. You know, inflation and interest rate corrections and um, for some a very dry finish to this season. What do we need to be doing as farmers to sort of understand this and then navigate um, decision-making and, and how we best adapt and move forward strongly? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to understand is that 
when you produce lamb or, or beef or goat meat or any any farming commodity, they're commodities. And and you know one of the features of a commodity is that they you know they trade on world markets. They the 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 um, the, the elements that control price and demand and supply are outside of your control. You you know you can't do anything about them largely. Um, uh, all you can all you can worry about is what happens on your farm. So so you know there's I mean the prices are what you get. Um, and and you know you can't really do control them much other than positioning yourself in in particular parts of the market. So so you know as um, Angus said before, land prices have been very good for a, a long period of time now, probably since about 2012. Um, it was it, it was inevitable that we were going to have a correction at some stage um, because you know commodity commodity markets tend to revert to the average long term price over trend price over time, and and so you know it wouldn't surprise me because they've been high for quite some time. That they'll be also, you know, below the long-term average trend for a while as well, just to, as part of that correction process, um, which would which would fit just fit with a normal commodity process. So, from the point of view of um, of un- the first thing is to accept that that's what happens as part of it being a commodity producer, and so what you can control is what happens on your farm, and and your cost of production is really what determines whether you can remain profitable at any level, given price. So, and ideally, your farming business model, your your model should be able to deliver um, a profit um, um, in all but the, the lowest twentieth percent of prices or below um, in an average season. So, if you're experiencing a drought, a below average season and below average prices, then okay, you're probably going to make a loss, and your responsibility as the as the farm business manager, farm business owner, is to minimise that loss. But but you know, average season, decile two or better prices, you should be able to make a profit. Um, and so, if your business model can't deliver that, then that's the, that's where you need to concentrate. You need to concentrate. And look at why it is that your business model is isn't delivering that sort of result. Um, what can you do? What are the decisions you can take on farm to change your business model so that it can be more robust and able to deliver profits in all but you know twenty percent of, of the price years that you get in average seasons? Um, I think that would be the, the main message that I, I would talk to people about because because you know th- decisions around or worrying about the prices or what prices are doing, it's it's really waste. It's wasteful energy because you can't do anything about that. Um, control the things you have control over. Yeah, great comment, Greg. And the only addition to that, in addition to cost of production, is really being strong in your modelling of your cash flow and being very conservative around the prices that are underpinning that cash flow. But it's so important now that we have a really strong prediction for how our cash flow is going to play out for us over the next three, six, 12, 24 months. You understand your peak debt position and that you're really proactive with your suppliers and your financiers and your other partners um, around how that looks so that you're giving those people certainty and you're proactive and on the front foot um, in your negotiations with those people um, so that everyone is is clear of where you are off to and and what what the future looks like for you, Greg. Would you agree to that? Yeah, totally. The management of cash um, is is just so important at the moment. So so that that is that's that should be fundamental and should be front of mind. You know, it's uh, the best businesses are born in the worst times, and and um, very strong businesses will come out of this period. So you know, if your business at the moment, if you're a bit unsure about how stable or, or secure your business is, then I'd encourage you to really put time into the into looking at the, the model, looking at the at the cash flow statements going forward, the budgets going forward, you know, making the necessary adjustments, maybe doing some things you've never done before because there, there's um there's there's nothing better than um than you know taking a model that's not quite there um and doing a few just tweaking it a bit, 
looking at what other people are doing in your area that, that might be a little bit more profitable, a, bit, a little bit more successful um, financially than you than you have been, um, and seeing how you can change things. Um, because if you can if you can generate a business that can survive in in low prices and and you know manage um, to at least break even or, or make small profits when prices are very low, then when prices return back to more normal long term levels, then you know your profitability will, will be very strong. So I think that's a really important thing. And I think the other comment I, I need to make is that one of the, I guess one of the issues that we've seen or that I've seen play out over the last eighteen months is just the speed which everything's happened. So we've had you know we've had a very quick um, increases in interest rates. Um, over you know over 12 to 13 14 months we've had we've had rapid drops in commodity prices so there hasn't been a lot of time or opportunity for people to adjust their operating circumstances to what's going on what's playing out and so that's added pressure just with the speed at which things have happened yeah it's a great comment greg angus a final comment from you have you had any tips or advice or comments for farmers that are just working working through some some key decisions for them at this time yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're not in the business giving advice, but um, uh, yeah, I, I think like what Greg said, you know, um, we, we've come off th- generally three phenomenal years that I, I, I think you know that was just an alignment of the stars, and we're probably unlikely to see that happen again. Um, so we are coming back to reality. It is a bit of a thud, unfortunately, um, but there are still. Um, you know, prospects, good prospects out there. It's it is just the unfortunate situation where, you know, now we've got three things working against us with slow consumer markets, um, seasonal conditions, and and higher livestock numbers out there. So, um, as Greg said, you you can you can't you can't control the the markets and you can't control the weather, um, but you can control your cash situation and your stocking rates and and focusing on what you can um, with a view to putting yourself in the best position for when things change and turn around again um, gives you a leg up for the next time the cycle goes up. Yeah, great comment, Angus. Um, As always, thank you very much, Greg, for your time and contribution to Profitable Farmer in this conversation. And Angus, great to connect with you and get your take on what has happened and what is playing out for us locally and globally. Really appreciate your time. Not a problem. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to be involved. So great to have Angus Gidley-Baird join us on Profitable Farmer. Um, As I mentioned, Rabobank just has extensive resources when it comes to analysing global and local data and making some predictions that support us in our decision-making. I hope you found that useful. And as always, great to have Greg online just to offer his insight and his input. Um, At the same time, there are real opportunities out there for us if we're bold enough to look at them and do the numbers on them. And it's worthwhile, you know, making sure that we're not buying into the narrative that we are, you know, stopping thinking, analysing, asking great questions and then looking for where the opportunities could be for you given what's playing out. So, again, I hope that has helped you in some small way understand what's playing out and um, help you in some small way to support some decisions that you might be making. But to Greg's point at the end there, let's make sure that we're right on top of our cash flow. Let's make sure that we understand and that we refine our costs of production. And, um, yeah, let's, let's be in control of the things that we can control and give less or a little bit less energy and attention to the market and the prices that to a large degree 
beyond our control. Angus, Greg, thank you as always and um, all the best to you all and bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.